0: Good morning and welcome, in the name of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. If you would turn to your bulletins, you will see there are a number of announcements this morning. Uh, first of all, we are very much looking forward, Lord willing, to the visit of our brothers Sam Gunap and uh, Tayuk So from uh, South Korea, Lord willing. Uh, they'll be arriving uh, Wednesday afternoon if everything goes to uh, schedule and itinerary. Uh, We hope they'll be with us for prayer meeting on Wednesday evening, Um, but uh, in any event, um, they certainly will be with us, Lord willing, uh, Sunday morning, and uh, the plan is that uh, they will be giving a report of the Lord's work in the gospel and the advancement of Christ's kingdom uh, in South Korea during uh, our Sunday school hour. Uh, The plan is that uh, we will all gather together, all age, will be truly all age next Lord's Day morning, uh, with all of our children, uh, so that we can all uh, hear um, uh, this uh, update and presentation. Um, You may have already heard that if you're with us at Sunday School today, either upstairs or downstairs, um, but just want to make sure everybody knows. I'll probably send a note out in the week just to remind us, uh, so we'll all be together, Lord willing. Uh, next Sunday morning uh, for All Age Sunday School. And then following that, uh, Lord willing, our brother Sam will preach the morning service and uh, our brother TK the evening service. With that in mind, uh, we plan to have a time of fellowship over lunch uh, next uh, Sunday uh, so that we can uh, spend some time with Sam and TK Uh, If you uh, know uh, them already by uh, means, Sam visited with us many years ago, uh, preached for us. Uh, We've got to know TK very recently via Live Link at the prayer meeting. Uh, This will be an opportunity to chat with them. Um, We're trying to make the uh, logistics very simple, Um, so uh, if you need something to uh, eat, Uh, straight after, then we're saying, let's just bring a sack lunch, and uh, we'll make that simple and straightforward, Um, but we'll have that time with them. Then we'll head home, uh, and um, then uh, evening service when our brother TK will be preaching. And then the following week, Lord willing, October 8th, we'll be back to our regular um, uh, fellowship lunch after morning service, uh, when we do uh, bring the crock pots and uh, we all get to enjoy uh, each other's cuisine. Uh, so, that will be the following week, Lord willing, October 8th. So, um, a few things to uh, keep in mind in the schedule coming up very, very soon. Uh, so, please make note of those. With those things said then, let us now prepare our hearts to worship God. The call to worship this morning comes from the book of Psalms and Psalm 118. Psalm 118 and verses 1 through 9. Let us hear God's Word. All give thanks to the Lord, for He is good, for His steadfast love endures forever. Let Israel say, His steadfast love endures forever forever. Let the house of Aaron say, His steadfast love endures forever. Let those who fear the Lord say, His steadfast love endures forever. Out of my distress I called on the Lord. The Lord answered me and set me free. The Lord is on my side, I will not fear what can man do to me? The Lord is on my side as my helper. I shall look in triumph on those who hate me. It is better to take refuge in the Lord than to trust in man. It is better to take refuge in the Lord than to trust in princes. Amen. And so far, the reading of God's holy, inspired, and infallible word. Let us together now praise the Lord for his steadfast love as we join in singing hymn number 512, entitled, Give Thanks unto the Lord Jehovah, 512. Before we stand to sing, since this song is new to many of us, I'll ask Alyssa to play through one complete verse And then we'll rise to sing. If you will please remain standing and turn back to hymn number 326. This is the day the Lord hath made. 326. be seated. And now let us come to God in prayer. Let us all pray. O Lord, our God, our Heavenly Father, we come to You this morning to sing Your praise, to declare Your glory, to give thanks to You, O Lord, for You are good, Your steadfast love endures forever. We would take up the words of the psalmist that we read together at the outset of our service acknowledging, O Lord, that if You are for us, if You are on our side, then we have nothing to fear. You are our great helper. We will not fear what man can do to us. We know that we shall look in triumph on all Your and our enemies. So again, O Lord, at the outset of our service of worship this morning, we would acknowledge that it is better to take refuge in You, O Lord, than to trust in anyone or anything else, whether it be the mighty princes of this world, be it in any other human being, be it in any other strength of ourselves, or anything else we might possess, Lord, it is better to take refuge in You. And so we seek to do with Your help, even this morning, that we come, O Lord, in total dependence upon You, acknowledging that You and You alone are God, Creator and Sustainer of all things, even ourselves. And so, O Lord, we bow down and worship You. We come with our prayers of confession, acknowledging again, O Lord, our sins of this past week and even this very day, even as we thought, O Lord, in our Sunday school hour of the day and generation in which we live that thinks so lightly of sin, even living in a day, O Lord, when Your church may take sin lightly. O Lord, remind us again of the great seriousness of law-breaking, rebellion against the God of heaven, and grant, O Lord, that we might seek forgiveness of our sins, seek remedy even where You have supplied it, O Lord, in Your Son, our Savior, Jesus Christ, even as we confess our sins of word and thought and deed we would come and plead His merits. Plead, O Lord, that forgiveness that is free, freely offered to all who will repent and trust in Him. Cleanse us, O Lord, again, we pray, and grant us again that great assurance and confidence in the Savior that You have supplied, that we might know our sins are forgiven this morning, and that we have peace with God that we are reconciled with the God of heaven. Our Father, we do come to give our thanks to You, for You are good. You have supplied all of our needs, both temporal and spiritual, this past week and even this very day since we have awoken from sleep. We thank You, O Lord, that You supply our needs as we pray each day. Give us this day our daily bread. And you supply our needs, O Lord, for daily grace and mercy. Your faithfulness to us is renewed, O Lord, in mercy and kindness, morning by morning. And for this we give you thanks. Father, then we come with our prayers of petition and intercession. We come to pray for our nation, We come to pray for those that You have placed in authority over us, as Your Word commands us. Father, we live in difficult days. We live in days, O Lord, where there is great division amongst our leaders, where there are many clamoring voices, many issues we face, both with regard to foreign policy and domestic policy, issues regarding our economy, issues regarding, O Lord, our uh, budgeting, Lord, many things of civic life, which again, O Lord, it is shown that we are not sufficient in of ourselves to be able to solve all of these problems. Father, we call upon You. We ask that You would humble our leaders and that You would grant them even under common grace to bow the knee to You, and to seek that wisdom that can only come from above. Lord, we pray that we might live in days of peace, relatively, and order that Your gospel might go forth unimpeded, and that Your church might be free and unmolested, O Lord, to preach the holy gospel of Jesus Christ. Lord, have mercy upon us, we pray. We ask for the many in our nation, O Lord, who walk in their own ways, who sin, O Lord, without any consideration or thought of the God against whom they sin. Have mercy upon them, O Lord. Those who deny, O Lord, their very creaturehood, they they who deny their very identity as You have made them, those who seek to to walk and to live according to their own wisdom. Lord, we see the bankruptcy that this brings to individual lives and to our communities, to our nation. Lord, have mercy upon us and grant that You would turn us from the bankruptcy of our sin, the enslavement of our iniquities, and grant us to turn to the God of heaven, who abounds in loving kindness, slow to anger, has abundant mercy upon all who will turn to him. Have mercy upon us, we pray, O Lord. And then, our Father, we do turn to the needs of our own assembly. We remember those who are away from us, whatever their circumstances may be some may be on vacation, some may be on business ventures and trips, some may be visiting family for other circumstances. Lord, You know the details. We thank You for watching over them thus far, even with the ups and downs of life, O Lord, in this fallen world. We remember those who have been sick, and we thank You for the measure of recovery. We pray that You would continue to heal them up and grant them uh, a recovery to full health and strength. Remember those, O Lord, who are continuing to battle various uh, health concerns and conditions, even in circumstances away from their usual routines and homes. We pray that You would help them. We pray, O Lord, that You would watch over all of our goings out and comings in. Lord, we think in particularly of our military this morning, and all those who serve our nation. We remember those, O Lord, who are deployed. We remember those who serve within the borders of our land here. We remember those who are deploying, Lord, in the uh, ongoing uh, uh, rhythms, O Lord, of these uh, service and military life. We pray that You would be with each one, particularly, O Lord, for those who are overseas, those who are going overseas we pray that You would help them. For those who know You, O Lord, we pray that they may be a bright light and testimony to those alongside them and amongst whom they serve, even to the communities, O Lord, in which they may find themselves, be it different and perhaps even strange, O Lord, of different countries and cultures. We pray that they might be those who bear the great gospel light of Jesus Christ. Father, we think of their families back here at home. We think of spouses and children, extended family. We pray that You would help them and strengthen them. Lord, with all of the concerns of separation, of distance, sometimes time zones, whatever it may be in the details, O Lord, You know, we pray that You would comfort them and that You would, Lord, uh, grant them to have that trust and confidence in You, both for their loved ones, for their needs, and for their own. Lord, we commend these things to You. Father, then we pray for those who have a variety of health concerns, whether they be with us here this morning or perhaps at home. Lord, again, You know those who are undergoing treatments those, O Lord, who are battling with long-term health concerns. We pray for those, O Lord, who may have found out even this week concerning a health issue. Again, O Lord, all these things are known to You. We pray for them in their weakness, in their malady and affliction. We pray that each one might turn to You, O Lord, You who are the great physician of body and soul, be their sufficiency, we pray. For we know, O Lord, for all who trust in You, even if You see fit in Your sovereign wisdom, O Lord, not to ultimately and fully restore and heal in this world, we know that we shall be in the world to come. We know, O Lord, whatever You call upon us to endure in this world, As believers, we know these are but light and momentary afflictions compared to the surpassing glory that will be ours hereafter. And so, comfort all such, O Lord, in the knowledge of this truth, in the knowledge of the promises of God, even today. And so, Father, we commend all of these, our prayers to You, and all of our needs as they're represented here. You see all hearts, Pity us in our need, we pray, even as we call upon You, in the name of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. For the consecutive reading of God's Word in the New Testament, we turn again this morning to Mark's Gospel and chapter 13. Mark's Gospel, chapter 13, this morning commencing to read at verse 24 and reading through verse 37. The Gospel of Mark, chapter 13, and reading verses 24 through 37. Here we come back to our Lord's discourse often known as his Olivet Discourse. Mark chapter 13 and reading at verse 24. Would you please rise, if you are able, for the reading of God's holy Word. But in those days, after that tribulation, the sun will be darkened and the moon will not give its light and the stars will be falling from heaven, and the powers in the heavens will be shaken. And then they will see the Son of Man coming in clouds with great power and glory. And then He will send out the angels and gather His elect from the four winds, from the ends of the earth to the ends of heaven." from the fig tree, learn its lesson. As soon as its branch becomes tender and puts out its leaves, you know that summer is near. So also, when you see these things taking place, you know that He is near at the very gates. Truly, I say to you, this generation will not pass away until all these things take place. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will not pass away. But concerning that day, or that hour, no one knows, not even the angels in heaven, nor the Son, but only the Father. Be on guard, keep awake, for you do not know when the time will come. It is like a man going on a journey, when he leaves home and puts his servants in charge, each with his work, and commands the doorkeeper to stay awake. Therefore, stay awake, for you do not know when the master of the house will come, in the evening, or at midnight, or when the rooster crows, or in the morning, lest he come suddenly and find you asleep. What I say to you, I say to all, stay awake. Amen. And so far, God's holy Word. Please be seated. And Now again, let us come to the Lord in prayer. Let us all pray. Our Father in heaven, again we come to ask for help as we would hear Your Word proclaimed. We pray that You would send Your Spirit and that He would come and that He might fulfill the ministry He has of taking the glories of Christ and making them known to us, that He might shine that great spotlight upon Jesus Christ and all that He has done in the salvation of sinners. Deliver us from all of our distractions, we pray. You know our souls, O Lord, the heaviness of heart for some, the cares and concerns that we have in this world, Lord, have mercy upon us and grant that in this central act of our worship we might give all of ourselves, all that we are in body and soul, to the hearing of Your Word and to the right response, even enabled by Your Spirit, that we might repent and turn from our sins and turn in faith to Jesus Christ, the one that you have sent. Hear our prayers, we pray, for Christ's sake. Amen. Please now turn in your Bibles to the book of Hebrews and chapter 10. The book of Hebrews, chapter 10, and this morning we're going to read from verse 1 through verse 10. Again, please give your careful attention as we read the Word of God. Hebrews, chapter 10, and reading at verse 1. For since the law has but a shadow of the good things to come, instead of the true form of these realities, it can never, by the same sacrifices that are continually offered every year, make perfect those who draw near. Otherwise, would they not have ceased to be offered, since the worshippers, having once been cleansed, would no longer have any consciousness of sins. But in these sacrifices, there is a reminder of sins every year. For it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. Consequently, when Christ came into the world, He said, Sacrifices and offerings you have not desired, but a body have you prepared for me. In burnt offerings and sin offerings you have taken no pleasure. Then I said, Behold, I have come to do your will, O God as it is written of me in the scroll of the book. When He said above, You have neither desired nor taken pleasure in sacrifices and offerings, and burnt offerings and sin offerings, these are offered according to the law. Then He added, Behold, I have come to do your will. He does away with the first in order to establish the second. And by that will, we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. Amen. The grass withers and the flower falls, but the Word of our God endures forever. sometimes it seems that we never really understand something until we can look back with the benefit of hindsight. Sometimes you may have had that experience if you started a new job. You never really understood it on the first morning or even the first week. But only as you had done that role for some time, as you look back with the benefit of hindsight, do you really understand what it's all about. Or perhaps if you've started a new course of study in school or college this semester, um, perhaps you won't fully understand that topic or subject until much later when you look back with the benefit of hindsight. Well, there's something similar to that experience here at the beginning of Hebrews chapter 10. The author's concern again here is that this fledgling Christian community has a proper perspective, a proper view from the benefit of the new covenant on the old covenant, on Judaism, and thereby resist the temptation and persecution that were seeking to draw them back into their former ways. And so, as we found previously in the book of Hebrews, we find again this morning, the author's observations about the old covenant, the looking back, offer useful reflections on the believer's life in the new covenant. Those in the new covenant can have the benefit of hindsight in consideration of what went before under the Old Covenant, and thereby benefit from that in their Christian life today. And so, as we come to this passage in Hebrews chapter 10, verses 1 through 10, the author looks back on life under the law in the Old Covenant, in Old Covenant Israel, with insights that were not possible those who lived at that time. As we consider our passage this morning, we are going to think about four things. First of all, understanding the Old Testament. Secondly, a telling contrast. Thirdly, the body of Christ. And lastly, a new and living way. So, understanding the Old Testament, a telling contrast, the body of Christ, and a new and living way. So, first of all then, understanding the Old Testament, verses 1 through 4. Hebrews 10 here begins with another history lesson, but not a history lesson of simple human history, but what we might call redemptive history. This is another redemptive history lesson. Verse 1, the law has but a shadow of the good things to come instead of the true form of these realities. So, we learn from this that there is a relationship there is also a sequence between the old covenant, the new covenant, and what the author calls the good things that are still to come at the end, the culmination of all things at the end of redemptive history. So, there's a relationship between those things, old covenant, new covenant where we are now, and the good things that are yet to come in fullness and culmination. And there's also a sequence, Old Covenant, New Covenant, culmination of all things. The author of Hebrews here says that the law was no more than a shadow of the heavenly realities. And so, the reality that is in Jesus Christ cast, as it were, its shadow Back into the Old Testament. But it was only, as it were, like a sketch on the paper. Now, you know how it is. I am not an artist myself, so please forgive if I don't get all the technicalities right. But when you start a portrait, very often the artist starts with a sketch, basic outline of the person they are going to paint. It doesn't have all the details. It's not the full reality of the portrait that is going to be hung in the gallery or in the home or wherever it's going to be displayed. That's the idea here. The reality of Christ cast a shadow like a sketch, an outline back into the Old Testament. And so the main emphasis here has to do with the shadow or the sketch available to the Old Testament saints under the Old Covenant. John Calvin put it like this. He says, The things of the law, quote, were like the rough outlines which are the foreshadowing of the living picture. Before they put on the true colors with paint, artists usually draw an outline in pencil of the representation which they intend, end quote. I don't know if Calvin was a great artist, but at least he knew as much as I pretend to know this morning about the process of painting portraits. Outline first, then the full picture completed. And so such was the shadow of, That was the law in the Old Testament. Now, this sets up two very important principles for interpreting the Old Testament in the light of the New Testament. We today get the privilege of doing that, having received of God's goodness and kindness the revelation of the New Testament scriptures as well as the Old Testament scriptures. We interpret the Old Testament in the light of the New Testament. What are these two important principles for interpretation then? Well, first of all then, this passage, this text this morning affirms a basic continuity between the Old Testament and the New Testament. There is not some absolute separation and divorce between Old Testament and New Testament. There is continuity. Cast back from Christ is His shadow, the author says, in the law of the Old Covenant. Yes, it is like but a rough outline, but there is real continuity with the things to come as there is real continuity in the artist's picture between the outline on the canvas and the full picture that's painted. If we think about that analogy just for a moment more, trying not to press it too much, but it is a helpful illustration. The picture, when you start with an, out, with an outline, that full picture that will result depends on a real unity, doesn't it, between outline and completed portrait so it is between the old testament and the new testament they depend on a real unity between them yes there is difference because god progressively unfolds his revelation and so we get the fullest clearest full light in the new testament but there is still a continuity of the same reality so, when you draw the outline on your canvas, you're drawing the same person, aren't you? Though you haven't put all the details in yet that will be the full picture. It's not so difference different that you sketched versus the end. If it is, then you're probably as bad an artist as I ever attempted to be. And that's not what should happen, is it? There's supposed to be continuity. The person you sketched is the person who ends up being the full portrait. That's the picture. And so, the principle of interpretation here we must always keep in mind is that there is a basic continuity, not identity, but continuity between the Old Testament and the New Testament. Second principle that we see here, the subject matter, the heart of the Old Testament is Jesus Christ. Now, again, it is Christ in the form of types, shadows, the outline, as we might say. He's seen there in the various types of the Old Testament. But the subject is Christ nonetheless. You see, the issue here is any time we seek to interpret the Old Testament with no relevance to Christ and His saving work, then we have forgotten this vital principle of interpretation. And therefore, we have wrongly understood the Old Testament. Continuity, and it is about Christ. How can we say that with such certainty this morning? Well, it's not because I say so. The Lord Jesus Himself says so. Luke 24, verse 27, On the road to Emmaus with those two disconsolate disciples, the Lord said, don't you know? Don't you know? The Scriptures are about me, He says. And what Scriptures particularly was He speaking of at that time? The Old Testament Scriptures. The Law, the Writings, and the Prophets. Jesus Himself says, it's about me. And so these two principles here that's outlined for us in these first four verses of how to interpret the Old Testament have a bearing on the whole Old Testament religious system, the whole mosaic system under the Old Covenant. See, what the writer comes then to apply here in verses 2 through 4 is to say this, if the law was but a shadow, if it was but the rough sketch, the rough outline, then its continual sacrifices cannot be expected to function sufficiently and completely to deal with sin. To use another word we've used as we've been going through the book of Hebrews, if this is provisional, it cannot be expected that this is sufficient and complete, the sacrifices of bulls and goats to take away sins. That's what the author is saying in verses 2 through 4. Indeed, the sacrifices of the Mosaic system pointed not to themselves so much as a solution, but rather away from themselves, because they highlighted the problem. The fact that you had to keep doing it day after day after day, the author says, shows that they are not ultimately the answer, else you would stop doing them. And so, the main point, the main teaching of these sacrifices under the Old Covenant, interpreting them in the light of continuity, Old Testament and New Testament, and in the light that they are about Christ, what are they teaching? They are teaching that they themselves could not take away sins. And so, they're teaching not what they could do, because they couldn't do that, But rather, they were pointing out their own limitations. They were but signs. They were but pointers, not the reality. They were the shadow. They were the sketch. And so then they pointed via that, indeed, to the One who would come, who could and would deal with sin once and for all. And that's why the author to the Hebrews, again, points to Christ. And he says, contra the sacrifices that had to be done again and again and again, because they could not take away sins. Christ offered Himself once for all, He says. And He doesn't offer Himself again and again and again, because His sacrifice is sufficient is complete. That's how we are to understand the Old Testament and the Mosaic order and the particular offering under the Levitical code. Well, with that as background, as the backdrop, we come in the second place then to this telling contrast in verses 5 through 7. These verses continue the idea of the insufficiency of the Old Testament sacrifices to achieve to accomplish God's will. The author here draws on the Psalms, and in particular Psalm 40 and verses 6 through 8. Psalm 40 was spoken by King David. David, who was himself in his person and office a type of Christ in the Old Testament, a sign pointing to Christ. Now, We know the Old Testament contains numerous types, numerous pointers of Christ. Numerous types of Christ as part of His shadow, cast back into that Old Covenant. Some types were institutions, like the tabernacle and the temple. Others were rituals, like those of the sacrificial system, the offering of blood of bulls and goats. Other types were actually people, individuals, and prominent among that category of types was David, from whose line Jesus would be born according to His human nature. And so David's statement here that the author to the Hebrews cites in Psalm 40 verses 6 through 8 of Psalm 40, we see here that as we consider it very carefully, what is said here could not ultimately be about David himself. Look how the author cites him, Hebrews 10 verse 5. Sacrifices and offerings you have not desired, but a body have you prepared for me. It's hard to see how that applies ultimately, completely, and fully to David, a man who was under the old covenant and where God did command that those sacrifices be offered. Therefore, this must be a statement that points forward ultimately to the work of Christ. It anticipates it. It anticipates that great work of Christ whose shadow is in these verses. Well, let's come to the contrast itself, Hebrews 10, verses 5 through 7. God does not desire sacrifices and offerings, but rather the doing of His will, obedience to His law. Now, there are many prophetic passages in the Old Testament that express God's displeasure with sacrificial ritual. Now, these warnings from the prophets do not condemn the sacrifices themselves under the old covenant because God had commanded that they be offered as this type, as this picture of the one great sacrifice that would come. So the warnings of the prophets was not about the sacrifices themselves in their right time and place in redemptive history, but the warnings was rather concerning the hypocrisy of those who were offering them, of those who simply went through the motions, as we would say, but had no heart involvement, did not trust in them as God had instituted them to point forward to the great sacrifice that would come, to the one who John the Baptist ultimately would say, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. They just simply did it as a matter of ritual, ticking the box. We might think of someone like King Saul, for instance, who would fall under that category. You remember that Saul had disobeyed an explicit command of God not to take captive any livestock from his enemies as he defeated them in battle. He was to put them all to death. And yet he kept them, kept them for himself and for others, as booty, as um, things that he could then possess. And when the prophet Samuel challenged him for this, you remember Samuel came to camp and he said, what's this noise of these animals I hear? Evidence of their still being alive. Well, Saul then said, well, okay then, Um, perhaps if I make a few sacrifices then, um, will that make God happy? Um, As one commentator puts it, quote, Saul offered to sacrifice a few of his contraband animals to God, paying him off according to the letter of the Levitical system, end quote. See, Saul just wanted to go, well, okay, if I have to, then let's just go through the ritual and tell him what I have to do, um, but my heart really isn't in this. How did Samuel respond to such a proposal? Well, Samuel gives Saul a stinging rebuke, doesn't he? 1 Samuel 15 verse 22. Has the Lord as great delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as in obeying? the voice of the Lord. Behold, to obey is better than sacrifice, and to listen than the fat of rams. What was Samuel's point? What's what's the point of our text here this morning, the author citing Psalm 40 here? The point is that even though God established The sacrifice of bulls and goats and rams under the old covenant. This was not God's ultimate desire, that men, women, boys, and girls would just go through the motions and just do that and think, well, that'll keep God happy. In other words, these things were not a statement of the solution, but in many ways, in a fallen world, a statement of the problem. What God ultimately desires from His creatures made in His image is obedience. Not just going through rituals. Not just making sacrifices. The sacrifices showed the constant presence, the horrid nature of sin. That was not God's ultimate desire, that that just be done repetitively forever. What He ultimately desired was heart obedience from His people. That's what's being said here. Maybe you're not fully persuaded yet. Then let's turn to another passage, the prophet Micah. Micah chapter 6. Here the prophet asks that same question. If sacrifices are really what God wants, is that His ultimate desire. Micah 6, 6 through 8, the prophet answers that question. Will the Lord be pleased with thousands of rams, with ten thousands of rivers of oil? He then goes on to say in that section, He has told you, O man, what is good. And what does the Lord require of you but to do justice and to love kindness and to walk humbly with your God? Micah is as clear as David in the Psalms. Ultimately, God's desire is for obedience to His holy will. And so, here in the light of that, is the telling contrast between Christ and the Old Testament system, as the author of Hebrews expresses it in verses 5 through 7. Sacrifices and offerings you have not desired, but a body have you prepared for me. In burnt offerings and sin offerings you have taken no pleasure. Then I said, Behold, I have come to do your will, O God as it is written of me in the scroll of the book. What is it that pleases God ultimately? Obedience to His will. What is it, as we might say in that accommodated language, that satisfies God? A heart eager to do His will. A life that expresses that holy character of God as image-bearer. That holy character is set forth in the law of God, summarized in the Ten Commandments. That's what Jesus Himself said, was it not? Matthew 22, verse, verse 37 and following. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind. This is the great and first commandment. And a second is like it you shall love your neighbor as yourself. It's a great contrast that's set up here, isn't it? Well, that brings us in third place then to the body of Christ, again in verses 5 through 7, the body of Christ. In addition to this contrast that we have looked at between what does and what does not please God, This passage in its entirety, but particularly in verse 5 through 7, contrasts then the animal sacrifices of the Old Covenant and the sacrifice of Jesus Christ as He Himself offers Himself. Now, an animal sacrifice under the Levitical law was valuable. The blood of that animal was shed, a life was taken. It was valuable because it therefore showed the wages of sin. There was a penalty, a price that had to be paid. But the blood of bulls and goats were never sufficient to pay that full price. It showed that a price had to be paid, that there was a consequence to sin, but it could never pay it. It can never be of sufficient value, we might say, to satisfy God's righteousness and justice. One commentator puts it like this. He says, quote, our authors, referring to the writer to Hebrews, our authors' contrast is between the involuntary sacrifice of dumb animals and sacrifice of into which obedience enters. The sacrifice of a rational and spiritual being, which is not passive in death, but in dying, makes the will of God its own." See the distinction that's been drawn here between a lamb that is taken passively to be slain and Christ who freely, voluntarily, consciously, lays down His life, offers Himself a ransom for many. And so, Christ's sacrifice here represents that which is most precious to God, the doing of His will, obedience. To obey is better than sacrifice, Samuel had said to Saul, didn't he, in that stinging rebuke? But who has ever obeyed like that perfectly? Even a Samuel, even a David, even the most righteous of the saints of the Old Testament. They could never accomplish that perfectly, could they? Personally, perpetually, obedience to the law of God. Love for God, love for neighbor as myself. They could not. Who has ever perfectly fulfilled the Father's will, both in terms of the moral law and in terms of the specific work that He was given to do, whatever that calling might be of that creature made in the image of God? Who has done that? just in case we we're thinking about this in our Sunday school uh, hour this morning of the way in which in our day and age it's one of great presumption, isn't it? We always think very well of ourselves. Just in case you think you might have. Got close. And I have to disappoint you. You have not. And neither have I. Not even close. So who has? Behold. Jesus could say and did say. He could say to God all of His days, but especially as He came to the very climax of His sufferings upon the cross, I have come to do Your will, O God." Everything written of Him in the book, as verse 7 puts it, that is all the law of God all of that which is the expression of the holy righteous character. Jesus did it, and He did it all personally, perfectly, perpetually. That's why these words ultimately speak of Him. This refers especially to those many shadows of Christ as we see them in the prophecies that were laid out concerning Him in the Old Testament, as they spoke of what it would mean for the suffering servant of the Lord to obey the will of God. Isaiah 42 verse 1, Behold my servant, whom I uphold, my chosen, in whom my soul delights. I have put my spirit upon him. He will bring forth justice to the nation. Who does that speak of? It speaks of Jesus Christ. He is that servant, but that will will involve great suffering. Psalm 22 speaks of the gruesome terms of the obedience of Jesus Christ to the will of God, particularly as it speaks of His death upon the cross as he would go there as sin-bearer, as he would go in perfect obedience to the will of God. Psalm 22, verse 14. I am poured out like water, and all my bones are out of joint. My heart is like wax. It is melted within my breast. Psalm 22 goes on. I can count all my bones, they state and gloat over me. They divide my garments among them, and for my clothing they cast lots. Commentator F.F. F. Bruce summarizes it like this. He says, quote, Wholehearted obedience is the sacrifice which God really desires. The sacrifice which He received in perfection from His servant's Son when He came into the world. The psalmist words, I have come to do Your will, O God, sum up the whole tenor of our Lord's life and ministry and express the essence of that true sacrifice that God desires." And so, that better sacrifice of which our author in Hebrew speaks again and again as he does this morning, that which was required, lest the knife should fall upon sinners like you and me, Christian, that sacrifice that pleases God, that sacrifice that wins His acceptance for us, Sacrifices and offerings you have not desired. The sacrifices of the Old Covenant were a statement of the problem ultimately. But how does Jesus answer that? A body you have prepared for me, he says. I have come to do your will, O God. You see here how Jesus offers to God on behalf of the believer a sacrifice that involved real, costly obedience in fulfillment of the perfect demands of God's law. It is significant that the author of Hebrews here links Christ's incarnation with His sacrificial death. Verse 5, you have prepared a body for me, He says. Because God desired that obedience, required it, He prepared a body for His Son. That's not just referring to the physicalness, but to the human nature, what it means to be a true human. The second person of the Holy Trinity, the eternal Word of God, a body was prepared, a human nature a true human nature in which He could live in this world, in which He could obey the law personally, perfectly, perpetually, and in which then He could pay penalty in full in His death upon the cross. So that, as He says in John 4.34, in that human nature, My food is to do the will of him who sent me and to accomplish his work, he says. Church father Athanasius put it like this. He says, quote, As the Word who is immortal and the Father's Son, it was not possible for him to die. God cannot die. Athanasius affirms that. As do all Orthodox Christians. Athanasius goes on to say, quote, And this is the reason why he assumed a body capable of dying. When he offered his own temple and bodily instrument as a substitute for the life of all, he fulfilled in death all that was required. End quote. Isn't that a wonderful statement? Of Athanasius. Like the technical language he assumed to himself, a true human nature, one that was prepared in which he would fulfill the great work by his obedience even to death upon the cross. And so finally, this morning, fourthly, we come to that new and living way in verses 8 through 10, a new and living way. All of this, all that we've said so far is why Jesus did not need any animal sacrifices when He entered and appeared in the true sanctuary that is heaven, in the heavenly temple. He did not need to bring the blood of bulls and goats as they had done on earth into tabernacle and temple. He had done God's will, personally, perfectly, perpetually, and He entered on His own merits with His own blood. That reminds us that that's something that only He can do. We could never do that. As we come to God, as we have come this morning, as we are in His presence this morning, right here, right now, we do not enter on our own merits. We do not enter bringing the blood of bulls and goats that will avail us nothing. We come based on His merits, what He has done, His blood having washed away sin. That's how our text here ends with the observation that He abolishes the first, that is the old covenant system, to establish the second in verses 8 and 9. What He's saying here is that the new and living way opened up by Christ's perfect obedience to the will of God. That's the focus here. It was this that tore the veil in the temple from top to bottom. Not the offering of the blood of bulls and goats day by day, the great offering on the day of atonement year by year. That never tore the veil, did it? The veil was always there. Once a year, the high priest went behind that veil to offer the blood on the great mercy seat, but it never tore the veil. But when Christ offered Himself, the veil torn from top to bottom, signifying the opening up of the way to God in reality, in the heavenly sanctuary, done by a perfect man who rendered perfect obedience in that human nature, that which truly pleases God, so that all who come by means of Him may then enter freely. That's why, John, that's why our Lord in John's gospel, John 10 verse 7, can say, I am the door of the sheep. How is He the door? Because He's offered His own obedient life. And He offers the blood from His sin-bearing death. And so as we come to the very last verse, verse 10, which concludes our text this morning, it concludes with this great emphasis. By that will, we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. God is holy. Heaven is holy. God's law, His standards, His requirements are holy. How can sinners like you and me dwell in the presence of God in that place where He manifests His glory heaven itself according to the standards of that holiness, His holy law? Only through faith in Jesus Christ which makes sinners like you and me also holy. It's because His body was offered up for sin that sinners like you and me if we will trust in Him, are made holy. Then we're not like the rest of the world who refuses to believe. There is a separation, a distinction between that which is holy and that which is not holy. But we're never holy because of us, only because Christ has won God's pleasure his acceptance, his peace, his reconciliation with the perfect obedience of his own life. Lord, I have come. Behold, I have come to do your will, O God. Christ said, if you have trusted in the Lord Jesus, how then should you live, having been made holy by the work of Christ? Well, Paul says it very simply, doesn't it, but very profoundly. Romans 12, verse 1, I appeal to you, therefore, he says, brethren, by the mercies of God to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. That's how we are to worship God. The God who has saved sinners like us by such a great gospel the good news of the work of Jesus Christ. That's why we are saved. That's why God rescued us from our sins, so that we would be holy and worship Him in the spirit of holiness. I appeal to you, Paul says present your bodies now as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God. That's what we are for, our bodies, our souls, our very lives, if we are Christians, to be living sacrifices, offered freely, gladly, not ticking the box. Let me ask you this morning, why are you here? Is it to complete just some ritual? Think that gets you some merit? God is pleased because you're sitting in that seat. What pleases a God is heart obedience. Not a heart obedience that merits anything for us, but a heart obedience that comes from the great gratitude and thankfulness for what God has done first for us in Christ. That's then what our lives are for, to be living sacrifices offered freely by redeemed image bearers who desire. Do you have any experience of that, Christian, this morning? Not perfectly yet, never will be in this world until we are in glory above, but any desire to reflect that great word of our Lord from Psalm 40, I come to do Your will. Not in the unique way that the suffering servant came to do it for salvation, but to serve God out of gratitude and thankfulness. Is that in your heart this morning, Christian? I desire to do your will, O God, to please you. One commentator asks this insightful question as we close this morning. He says, quote, what will you give to God out of gratitude for so great a salvation? what will you give to God? He then goes on to remind us, well, you're not really ever giving anything to God because God owns everything else. The earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof. He owns everything in creation. So, you're not really giving Him anything. Don't think you do. He doesn't become greater, richer, better because of anything we can give to Him. He concludes by saying this, quote, if you want to please God, And what could be more worthwhile in all of our lives as Christians? Then you will do His will, as it is written in His book. Lo, I come to do your will. I want to do what pleases you. We do it in and through Christ that then perfects the works that we offer to Him out of gratitude and thankfulness, the living sacrifices of our lives but always in the name of our Savior, as Paul said, who loved me and gave himself for me. May God so help each one this morning to know Christ, to embrace Him as Savior and Lord, and then live to His glory, delighting to do His will. May God so help us. Amen. Let's pray. Our Father, we thank You for our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. We thank You for this One who is the ultimate reality, whose shadow was cast back into the Old Testament, and that who, One who is the fulfillment of all that the Scriptures speak, both in Old Testament and New Testament, and that One who is the, the fullness of everything that fills all and in all, and even as we will come to know it much more fully at the great culmination of all things, even at the last great day, and then into eternity forever and ever. We pray, O Lord, that You would help each one to turn to Your Son, the one obedient servant by nature, and grant that we might find in Him then renewed natures, who will offer our lives as living sacrifices that will please Him. Help us, we pray for Christ's sake. Amen. We turn again to our hymnals and to hymn number 176, Not All the Blood of Beasts. Please rise to sing if you are able.